Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Has anyone ever caused you to doubt your beliefs? We'll look at that subject today as we continue our delayed series, First Impressions, from the book of 1 John. I began this series some time ago, and we presented two segments, but my schedule went haywire after that, and I'm just now getting back to this wonderful book. If you missed those first two segments, then go back and give a listen to them, but I'll also briefly summarize it here today. I appreciate your listening. And I hope you'll share this podcast with others and afford us the opportunity of teaching the Bible to as many people as possible. So, has anyone ever caused you to doubt your beliefs? Maybe someone has said to you, do you really believe that nonsense about Jesus Christ? Do you believe? Do you really believe the stories about a big fish swallowing a man? About someone turning water into wine? about someone coming back to life after death? Don't you know that heaven is simply a fairy tale? Well, I've faced all those questions and more, and I've studied through them, and I'm intellectually convinced of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of Scripture. But then I've had a lifetime to study all of this. What about the people who sit in church every Sunday? What about new believers? What about you? Have other people sowed troubling doubts in your mind? Well, that happened in the days of the Apostle John and to the very people that made up the churches over which he was an overseer. And he answered by writing this letter of 1 John. It's a wonderful book for us to study along these lines. It begins with a very eloquent and powerful prologue that I want to read, and then we'll dissect it. And from our study today, I want to draw out seven incredible faith factors for you to consider. So let's begin with 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, the two words that I want you to notice right at the beginning are the words this and that, or as they occur in the text, that and this. Look at verse 1 again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. 
In the earlier messages, I gave the background scenario for this letter of 1 John as it has been suggested and reconstructed by Dr. Colin Cruz in his commentary. He reasons that the Apostle John was now the last surviving member of the Twelve Disciples of Jesus, which I think is correct. He was the elderly bishop of Ephesus, and he wanted to draw his life and his ministry to a conclusion by presenting his memoirs about the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he wrote the fourth gospel. In that gospel, he stated emphatically that Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be Almighty God. Jesus was and is God who was made flesh and dwelt among us, who died and was resurrected, and who did so to give us fellowship, a relationship with God. This literal view of the dual nature of Jesus Christ, both God and man, both physically dead and resurrected, was simply too much for some of the Greek-oriented thinkers that populated the churches in John's region. Their philosophical background made it difficult for them to accept this kind of simplicity, this literalness, this high view of the person of Jesus Christ. And so many of them began leaving the churches. They said, I suppose, something like this. John was a great man in his day, but now he is old and senile. And if you believe what he is saying and what he has written in that gospel that he wrote, then you are simply foolish and simple-minded as well. And so the skeptics began leaving the churches, and those who remained no longer had assurance that they could believe what John was saying. They were full of questions. They were riddled with doubts. And so John wrote three letters to deal with this crisis, first, second, and third John. And his basic message was, especially here in first John, we are right and they are wrong. It's as simple as that. The key to the whole book of 1 John is in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, as I said in an earlier podcast. These deserters went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing, from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. In other words, they went out from us, they were wrong, but you know the truth. You are on the right side of this, so do not be bullied, don't be dismayed, don't be spooked. That's the tone of the letter of 1 John. He is going to give his listeners and all of us one assurance after another, one affirmation after another, that we are right and they are wrong. But he begins with this wonderful, beautiful prologue, which summarizes in four verses all 21 chapters of the recently published gospel that he had written, and which, it seems, had provoked such a reaction. So let's begin with the word, that. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This is really very similar to the way that John began the fourth gospel. The gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I want to take a moment to explain something, and it's a little bit technical, but it's important. When the Jews of the first century went to their synagogues for worship, 
the Hebrew version of the scripture was often read, the Hebrew, we would say today, the Hebrew Old Testament. But most people no longer understood Hebrew. Most of the people in the New Testament spoke Greek and or Aramaic. So Jewish scholars developed a series of Aramaic-speaking commentaries and paraphrases of the Old Testament, and these were called Targums, T-A-R-G-U-M-S, Targums, which was an Aramaic word meaning translation. We have written Targums going back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries, but these are based on earlier ones, oral Targums, that dated back to before the 1st century. So in these Targums, the Jewish scholars paraphrased the Old Testament so that people could understand it in the Aramaic language. Now, these Jewish scholars did not want to use the holy name Yahweh or Jehovah. They didn't want to do that in Old Testament days, and they didn't want to do it at the beginning of the New Testament era. They thought the word, the personal name for God, was too holy to be spoken. And so, in the Targums, they substituted the Aramaic word Memra, M-E-M-R-A, M-E-M-R-A. Memra was the Aramaic term for word. So, for example, if you went to the synagogue and they read Genesis 15 from a Targum, what the Hebrew says is that Abraham believed Yahweh. But in the Targums, it would say Abraham believed Memra. He believed the word, meaning that he believed in God. The Aramaic word Memra is the same as the Greek term Lagos. And this was John's name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Memra or the Lagos. Memra in the Aramaic, Lagos in the Greek. In the beginning was the Lagos. Now, John's listeners would have known the term because that was the way in which the Targums identified Yahweh. They would have known that in the very first sentence of his gospel, he was presenting Jesus Christ as God himself. So, the Gospel of John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Memra, or the Lagos, or God the Word. And God the Word was with God, and God the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, the Lagos, God the Word. All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. And in verse 14, God the Word became flesh. The Word, the Lagos, the Memra, God the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So emphatically was John claiming that Jesus Christ was God, that some of these shallow-minded Greek attenders of the churches were shocked by that. It was more than they could philosophically comprehend, and so they began leaving the churches. But in the prologue of his epistle, 1 John, the apostle doubled down on his assertion. He was not going to yield the point, not an inch. He was not going to retract his theology. He makes it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ was God and yet also fully human. He said, that which was from the beginning— being Almighty God, the Word. We have heard Him, we have seen Him with our eyes, we have looked at Him, and our hands 
have touched him. Now, this simple sentence that begins the book of 1 John is actually making three claims about Jesus. And his opening really half sentence, the Apostle John makes these three stupendous statements about the purpose of Jesus Christ and his person. And they are our first three faith factors. First, he is God. He has been around from the very beginning. In the beginning was the word. Second, he is human. We have seen him with our eyes. We have heard him with our ears. We have touched him with our hands. And third, he was dead and he came back to life. You say, where is that in this sentence that opens the epistle of John? Well, it's a clear allusion to what John said at the end of his gospel. In John chapter 20, John said that when Jesus first appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, Thomas was absent. Thomas later said, I will not believe unless I feel the scars on his body and touch them with my hands. And the next week, Jesus appeared. And this time, Thomas was present. Jesus said, here, look at my wounds. Look at my scars. Put your hands here and touch me. Trust me and stop doubting but believe. So here in 1 John chapter 1, Jesus said that he and the other disciples felt with their hands and handled this resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And so in the first half of the sentence, John simply doubles down on the fact that Jesus was both God and man, who was both slain and resurrected. And that is that. Now let's look at the last half of the sentence. It begins with the word, this. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Here, John again uses this word, logos, the Aramaic memra, logos, to identify Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to proclaim the word of life from the housetops. Now, I love the word proclaim. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. John here is being very assertive. He was not retreating an inch. He was going to go wherever he could to proclaim, to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. This reminds me back of my earlier days. Something really amazing happened in America in the late 1960s and early 1970s among young people. I was one of them. We called it the Jesus Revolution or the Jesus Movement. And the unofficial song of that movement, that revival meeting among young people, is one that I think we must have sang 10,000 times. We sang it so often that now we look back and we almost laugh about it. But I remember it very well, and I've never gotten beyond its words. The song said, I'll shout it from the mountaintop. I want my world to know the Lord of love has come to me. I want to pass it on. And that has been the driving desire of my life ever since. And all of the ways available to us, we want to shout this from the rooftops and from the mountaintops and say, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, can you believe that all of this tremendous content is contained simply in the very first verse of this little book of 1 John? Let's review these, what I'm calling faith factors. First, Jesus is God. Second, he is human. We know that he is God because he is referred to as the Word. We know he is human because they saw him with their eyes and heard him with their ears and touched him. He died and rose again. 
they handled his resurrection body. And John said, I'm never going to back down from proclaiming this to the world. Jesus is God. He is human. He died and rose again. And it is a message to be proclaimed. All of that in verse 1. Now let's go on to verse 2. John is going to repeat himself for emphasis and take things a little bit further as he unrolls his content sentence by sentence and thought by thought. He said, this life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. There is a kind of progressive parallelism here. John is repeating himself, but he's taking matters a little further. He said, in effect, Jesus Christ dwelled with God the Father and in highest heaven, but he came down to earth and appeared to us, and we saw him with our eyes, and as long as I live, I'm going to testify about this and to proclaim it to you because it is the source and secret of eternal life. Now, no one in the Bible loved talking about everlasting life or eternal life more than the Apostle John. It's one of the great themes of his gospel. In the fourth gospel, he said things like, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, John 3.36. He said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, John 5.24. He said, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them on the last day. John 6, verse 40. He said, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Verse 47 of chapter 6. He said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. John 10, 28. We have that kind of talk all the way through the Gospel of John, and we also have it all the way through his first letter. One of his glorious themes is that because Jesus Christ is both God and human, both slain and resurrected, we have the potential in him of living forever, everlastingly, and eternally. The Christian Broadcasting Network recently carried the story of Tina Hines, who had a cardiac emergency and whose heart stopped beating. Emergency responders got her to the hospital and restored her heartbeat and put her on a ventilator, but they didn't know how much damage had been done. The next morning, after they removed the ventilator and Tina woke up, her husband placed a pencil and notebook in her hands, and she wrote two words— They were difficult to make out, but he finally recognized that she had written the words, It's real. He said, What is real? The pain? The hospital? But no, she was referring to heaven. During her time of unconsciousness, she had evidently come face to face with Jesus and with heaven. And now she's recovered and has an entirely new perspective on death and dying. Now, stories like that are intriguing. We don't base our theology or our beliefs on them. They simply intrigue us. We base the assurance that we have of eternal life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and on the biblical promises regarding heaven. And based on that, we can say with full assurance and total confidence, it is real. And so John said in this prologue, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So here are our five faith factors. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, he is human. Number three, he died and rose again. Number four, we're going to proclaim this to the world. And number five, it is the message of eternal life. Now let's go on to the next verse, verse three, and we can add another point to John's reasoning. He said, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He brings in the, uh, now the idea that all of this is designed to lead us into fellowship. The idea of fellowship is that of having a wonderful, personal, active relationship with somebody. When you meet another Christian anywhere in the world, there is an unusual bond that is really difficult to describe. Last week, I got into a taxi cab from my hotel. I was going from my hotel to the train station in Naples, Italy, and as we bounced through the streets, I noticed that on the driver's dashboard, he had a fish, ichthus symbol, a fish symbol with the word Jesus in it. I leaned over the seat and told him I liked his symbol, and he became very animated and said in broken English, Jesus, he's number one. He is my life. And I told him the same was true for me. When we arrived at the train station, I gave him a friendly pat on the back and I said, my brother in Christ. On the curb were two young men who appeared to be in their 20s. They were Brazilians who had just arrived at the train station and they needed a taxi cab to their lodging. When they heard me say, my brother in Christ, they looked up and cried out, us too, us too. They rushed over and said they were Jesus followers who were traveling in Italy, and we all embraced one another and almost sang the doxology in the middle of the street. I expect that in the coming ages in heaven, we may look up one another and revisit the experience and really sing the doxology. It is our commonality in Christ that gives us a kind of relationship that no one else has in the world. And it's because of the fellowship that we have, not only with one another, but with the Lord himself, with Christ. John said, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we can add this to our list of faith factors. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, he's human. Number three, he died and rose again. Number four, we're never going to stop proclaiming this to the world. Number five, it is the message of eternal life. And number six, it provides a rewarding relationship with our brothers and sisters around the world, and most of all, with the Father and with the Son. But now there is one more thing to say in verse four. John said, we write this to make our joy complete. Now, this is one of those times when we have a text-critical issue. Some of the old Greek manuscripts say, we write this to make your joy complete. And others say, we write this to make our joy complete. 
But it really doesn't matter because both are true. The reality of what John is talking about gives all of us joy. It gave joy to John to write it, and it provided joy to those of us who read it. It gives us joy unspeakable and full of glory. I think that it's taken me about a half century to begin to understand and to practice the joy of the Lord. In other words, all of my adult life, I've been studying this subject in the Bible and trying to grow into it. Even now, I don't practice the joy of the Lord as perfectly as I want, but I keep working on it. We all have different personalities, and I'm melancholy by nature. But I'm a far different person now than I was when I was 19 years old. I feel that I have more of the joy of the Lord in me. Well, how do we develop joy? This verse tells us. John said, I'm writing something to you. I'm giving you some inspired scripture, and if you study it, I will have more joy, and you will have more joy. I am writing these things to make joy complete in our lives. In other words, he was saying, if you study my letter, then you will grow in joy. And maybe he was also thinking of what he had written earlier in the Gospel of John when he quoted Jesus as saying the same thing. Jesus said in John 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be complete. In other words, if you will study what I am saying, you will grow in joy. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 111, your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. And I can't help but quote Jeremiah, the melancholy prophet, who said, When your words came, I ate them, and they became unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. In other words, as we prayerfully and patiently and persistently study the wonderful book that we have called the Bible, there is something about it that feeds and fuels our joy. And that's the final faith factor. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, he is human. Number three, he died and rose again. Number four, we're never going to stop proclaiming that. Number five, it's the message of eternal life. Number six, it provides fellowship, a rewarding relationship with our brothers and sisters, and most of all, with the Father and with the Son. And number seven, this living relationship, as we discover it unfolding in the Bible, brings unspeakable joy to our lives day by day as we read and study God's Word. All of that we can draw out of this prologue of John. So don't let anybody undercut your faith. There will always be detractors and defectors, but remember this powerful prologue to John's letter, the first four verses, and remember his this and that. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. 
Well, next time we'll continue on with verse 5 and following. But for now, thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. Remember to check out my podcasts and recommend them to other people as well as my website at robertjmorgan.com and the books and resources we have available. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio engineering and editing is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website, robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in. And may God be with you until we meet again.